Well, it's my great privilege to uh, present this paper, Noah, the Preacher for Preachers. Now, I don't come to uh, this paper as an academic, but as a retired pastor who has been installed in, in the London pastorates for nearly 40 years. And Noah presents to us a fascinating portrait of a faithful, committed servant of the Lord. But as I uh, prepared this paper, I've recognised the temptation to be resisted in coming to the text and handling the biblical text properly. There's a danger that we can extrapolate material, make assumptions, draw deductions, which perhaps are inappropriate. We must be very careful not to flout biblical interpretation. If we do, the end result is that the Bible is misused. There is a particular relevance for this subject at this present time in the history of our country. Today, the gospel preaching ministry is neither preferred nor popular. To be a pastor-preacher is to be counter-cultural. Oh, of course, in one sense, that's always been the case. Nothing new there. But the age and day in which we live has made the Christian ministry passe. And certainly, the, the Christian faith increasingly despised and marginalised in our society. And indeed, the call to Christian living and Christian life today is to be countercultural. And God's servants, preachers and pastors, are to prepare God's people to be countercultural. And we are called, are we not, to preach in a hostile and intimidating situation in our country today. That is the facts of the matter. It never has been easy to be a gospel preacher, and yet we sense, do we not, it is becoming increasingly difficult. And we feel that we are in a hostile, intimidating environment. To preach, for example, on the holiness of God and the judgment, the inevitable judgment that is to come, is to invite the deepest scorn. One apt quote from George Orwell. During times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. And you and I are called to be biblical revolutionaries. And by this token, of course, Luther was a revolutionary, as was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Alexander Schwarzenitzin, and in his later years, Francis Schaeffer of the Brie. And the first, as far as we can judge, was Noah. And we turn to God's word, and this is what we read. This great statement of God's servant Noah. But Noah found favour 
in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8. I've got uh, five things to say and as I want to develop this, I pray that it may be helpful and uh, positive for us all. I'm building a course upon those past papers that we've heard in these last two days for which I'm very grateful. The first thing then I want to develop is this. Noah was in living, vital relationship with God. And how wonderful that passage is that we considered earlier this morning. By faith, in Hebrews 11 verse 7, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And I believe that this was the key feature uh, of his life that made him the preacher of righteousness that he was. And this determined his whole life and his whole ministry. The emphasis on the righteousness of Noah is in direct contrast, of course, as we've seen, with the wickedness of the generation in which he served. And the contrast then between the righteousness of Noah and the wickedness of his generation is seen throughout the flood narratives. And we see, do we not, in these flood narratives, how the Lord God takes the initiative throughout. Noah became the preacher he was on account of the righteousness he received from God and that relationship that he had with the Lord. It was God who made him a preacher. And that is the same today. It is God who makes preachers. They don't think that would be a good idea for me to enter a theological college and to become a minister. No man takes this ministry on his own behalf. He is called and sent by God. And we mustn't lose that emphasis. I suggest in some quarters that's altogether possible. But we must resist this. It was God who made him a preacher. And today it is God who makes preachers. This effective service for God in the ministry of the word is dependent upon a lively, developing, godly walk with the Lord. And the scripture makes this abundantly clear and we must never forget this. For example, we have in the pastoral epistles these, these uh, wonderful instructions that uh, we must lay on the consciences of every pastoral candidate for the ministry. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, For the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, men of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
Now, the, the life of the believer, of the Christian preacher, is of great importance. The calling of a preacher of the gospel is the highest one there is. And scripture requires us to maintain these lofty standards. To me it's amazing and wonderful how Noah showed forth these fruits of his living faith in in God and his vital relationship with the Lord in the day and age in which he lived. Here's the needful application we can make that in the worst of days, the Lord, by his grace, finds a man. He always finds a man. Thank God for that. And where would we be unless he did? To be sure, we have been reminded in this conference that he was an imperfect man, one with character flaws and failings. His reputation, though suffering from the drunkenness issue, I'll have cause to refer to that in a moment, nevertheless, his esteem is held high in the pages of Scripture. From Ezekiel 14 and verse 14, we read these words. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, in the an ungodly situation. They could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Lord. So, Noah is in the category of Daniel and Job and is commended by his godliness, notwithstanding his fall. No little praise for Noah here. And the sure fruit of that relationship that he had with the living God. And this relationship then provided a, provides for us a foundation of our understanding of Noah, the preacher for preachers. And fundamental to this uh, living relationship with God was his God-centred worldview. This was indeed the fruit of his saving relationship and a major factor in terms of our ministry today. It's essential and fundamental, brothers, that we have a world-centred, a God-centred worldview. A God-centred worldview. This uh, Christian worldview has essential elements in her book, Total Truth, by Nancy Piercy. She brings some helpful insights into this and she says that all worldviews contain three elements. They are, firstly, creation. How did it begin? Where do we come from? The second was the fall. What went wrong? What is the source of evil and suffering? And thirdly, redemption. What can we do about it? 
how can the world be set right? Now, Piercy claims that every worldview, Christian or non-Christian, or philosophy, has to answer these fundamental questions. We were reminded yesterday that Noah's world was a world of violence and murder. And so is ours. Late 2005, not many miles from here, in Wilsdon, a young and brilliant lawyer, Tom App Reese Price, was slain for his oyster card and mobile phone. He was a brilliant lawyer with a, a great future before him. And that sad slaying shocked not only London, but shocked the country. His, uh, his murderers were arrested and were charged and in 2006 were sentenced to life imprisonment. Boris Johnson then, MP and journalist on the Daily Telegraph, wrote these words. Instead of slouching through their term of incarceration, feeling vaguely misused by society, we want them, and them was the perpetrators of this, Carty and Brown, we want them to repent and change. It's very difficult to see how this change might happen. Except through one route. And that brings me to the current controversies about religion. Bourgeois Britain is going through a bit of a panic about the role of God in society, largely fuelled by nervousness of Islam. Attacks are made on faith schools, on BA staff who wear the cross. And the idea seems to be that we can only voice reservations about one religion if we bash them all impartially. This is why Richard Dawkins is having such a sore away success with an atheist tract called The God Delusion and why Robert Kilroy Silk can be clapped on question time when he calls all religion fairy tales. Alert readers of this column, he goes on to say, will know that my own faith is a very feeble tinsel sort. I sometimes think there is, might be some kind of celestial radio signal, but it's about intelligible as Radio Tirana. There is a smart Alex schoolboy side of me that exalts with Dawkins as he teases the believers and demonstrates the biological absurdities of the incarnation. And I remember my fierce 11-year-old joy at reading the account of how the Darwinians destroyed the creationists in that debate at Oxford. But he concludes, But perhaps God is useful for society to keep up its sleeve.
Perhaps God is useful for keeping society to keep up its sleeve. Notice there is a perhaps there. Even Boris is none too sure. For him, as for many, the jury is out. Now these words are seven years old, but they have a resonance today, have they not? And one cannot doubt that the current Mayor of London still holds these views. The culture, the makers and shakers, the media elite and sophisticates that view evangelical Christianity as a kind of mad woman in the attic says, just keep her there. And thus we endure scorn and mockery and attitudes bordering on contempt. At best, God is useful, if he exists at all, for society to keep up its sleeve. In such a scorning and mocking day as ours, Noah served the Lord. His relationship with him was so dynamic and God-centred, he preserved and he is a great challenge to us all. Secondly, I want to say this, and this relates to what uh, Ian said this morning. Noah's relationship with God was a saving one, issuing in a lifetime of Eric's experimental faith. Noah's relationship with God was a saving one, issuing in a lifetime of experimental faith. Uh, we read this, don't we, in, in Hebrews 11. The, the quality of Noah's walk with God. It is so detailed that we are left in awe of such faith. And we are told in the Genesis account that he found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And this favour or this grace that it's in itself initiated faith in Noah became for him a wholehearted and prompt obedience. Those detailed words that uh, Philip read to us in Genesis chapter 6 and the chapter concludes with these words, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. His impressive life added integrity to his ministry. And that is a challenge for every preacher of the gospel today. A God-centred worldview, experimental faith, issuing in prompt obedience to the word of God with integrity. And one, one cannot emphasise these qualities enough today. The fruit of faith. But then there is another major need in ministry. For Noah, 
there was no precedent for this. He was in every respect a pioneer. And so we can, by judging this and owning this, confidently assert he had an original, dynamic, growing life with God. And so must every preacher of the gospel. I cannot live my, your life for you, my brothers. You can't live my life for me. I must do so before the face of God. And this is where his example is so challenging for preachers today. One major need for young pastors and preachers is for them to have mentors to inspire them and with whom they can consult. And then as the Lord directs, as they gain experience and spiritual growth for them themselves to become mentors to others. As a young inner London pastor, in the early 1970s, that role was provided for me by the late Roy Jocelyn of East Street Baptist Church, author of Urban Harvest. He was a mentor and a godly example to me in those early days. And what is so impressive about Noah is that he had no mentor, save that of the Lord alone. His life of faith determined the effectiveness of his ministry. He ministered and served God without any precedent to guide him. Amazing. Staggering. But true. And there are certain applications, of course, that we could make and make personal. It's been encouraging for theological colleges, LTS included, to have recognised that in recent years the need for local church involvement with their students to bring their students practical expression of ministry to their studies. It's been my privilege in past years to be involved with that ministry here at LTS and that continues and increases and deepens today for which we thank God. And this, this practical use of students in local church ministry for their experience whilst at college prepares them for future service. And in, within the network of such involvement can foster mentorships with senior men that could prove invaluable in those early days of ministry where the new pastor is particularly vulnerable. It was in the 1980s where the seepage from local churches of newly installed pastors became such a worry to me. There was a, a, a developing trend of precipitous resignations from the pastorate, from first-time pastors, that was such a concern to me. In the two-year period, I think I, I attended about 14 inductions. 
And 12 of those men left their ministries too, too early. I monitored the failure rate. It was such a concern to me. And of leaving aside the sadness of moral failure, that's one category, of course, which I'm not touching upon, but the vast majority of pastoral resignations from newly installed pastors came over from issues that could have been resolved and dealt with had godly mentors been involved. And the sadness for me was this, that the resignation of such men from their first pastorates meant they did not resume any further ministry. And that is a fact. Thus, that generation of new pastors were lost to the local church. So, Noah had to confront a scornful, mocking, hateful world, and so must we. Now, that's not to say, of course, as I spoke earlier, that he was perfect by no means. And we read of the sad incident in Genesis 9, when he planted the vineyard. And we read in verse 21 of chapter 9, Genesis, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away so that, so that they would not, could not see their father's nakedness. Yes, the Bible does present to us no plaster of Paris saints. Here are real men and real women with their faults and failings. So, my friends, I must confront my rebel heart and mortify indwelling sin. And so must you. My rebel heart. Uh, I look back over my ministry. And I confess this. The main problem I had to deal with in the ministry was me. From Samuel Rutherford's letters, he wrote these wonderful words. Every man blames the devil for his sins, but the great devil, the house devil, of every man, the house devil that eats and lies in every man's heart is that idol that kills all himself. Oh, blessed are they who can deny himself and put Christ in the room of themselves. Oh, would to the Lord that I had not uh, myself but Christ. Not uh, my lust, but Christ. Not uh, my ease, but Christ. Not uh, my honour, but Christ. Oh, sweet word in Galatians 2.20. I live no more, but Christ lives in me. 
Oh, if everyone would put away himself, his own self, his own ease, his own pleasures, his own credit, and his own twenty things about himself that he sets up as idols in his heart above that of Christ. How we need those words today. Noah's relationship with God was a saving one, issuing in a lifetime of experimental faith. And thirdly, Noah's ministry opportunities, whilst unique to him, bear similarities to our own. Now the call and challenge of the Lord to Noah were without parallel. Does this mean therefore that he has nothing to say to us today? No. Those, uh, those words in Matthew 24 remain for us a, a challenge, do they not? 24 verse 37 as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. The day of the coming of the Son of Man will be a day of normality, just like our own. So it was in Noah's day when the flood came. And as Stephen reminded us yesterday, we must have that in our consciousness and ought to be reflected in our ministry. People carrying on with lives with no thought of God whatsoever. And this is the kind of day in which we are ministering, brothers. We may wish we weren't, but we are, for this is the reality. The immensity of the charge to Noah cannot be underestimated. In this time and in this place, he was the preacher or herald of righteousness. It was God who called him and equipped him for such a noble task. I don't believe he would have balked at the pressing need to herald the unpalatable but urgent need to repent and heed the warnings of judgment. The questions do we. One of the frustrations, we haven't details of his ministry to that ungodly world we can draw inferences and make conclusions, but they are at best speculative. But we know his words, I think they're only recorded words we have of Noah in the Bible, cursed be Canaan. In Genesis 9, 24. In his expository sermons on to Peter, Dr. Lloyd-Jones makes two points with regard to those responding to Noah's preaching. 
And the verse he's particularly commenting on is 2 Peter 2 and verse 7. Or 2 Peter 2 rather than verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. And and Dr. Lloyd-Jones makes these two points which I think are very helpful. And the first was this, the very fact of the smallness of the number is a severe trial and test. And the smallness of our congregations are a trial to us. And they ought to be. And it's a test to us. Shall we continue faithful in the work of the Lord? And the second point he makes is, is this, It is in a time of testing also because of the conduct of the world with respect to those who do stand thus, small in numbers, on their own. And we stand out in this world, do we not? The Christian man, the Christian woman stands out and stands apart. And it's such a challenge that the preacher today of 2013 must minister and must minister to God's people and this world in such a day and for such a day. So in the light of Dr Lloyd-Jones' words and their very helpful words and I commend those sermons to you in in 2 Peter, his book of sermons, expository sermons, they're very helpful. We We can apply them to our own hearts, can we not? And confess their reality The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5 You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now it seems obvious to say this and forgive me if I state the obvious. But the putrefaction of the world doesn't appreciate the salt. Doesn't welcome the salt. Doesn't applaud the salt. The darkness of the world does not value the light, does not say, welcome, please come and illuminate me. No. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now, I find these metaphors deeply challenging. For in these metaphors there is an inherent conflict. That's not altogether appreciated in ministry today. But it's been a recurring theme throughout the history of the church. In these metaphors that our Lord used, we note their inherent conflict with the world. But we also see and can glean and take to our hearts some comfort in the metaphor of salt and light. Now the quantities of salt the amount of the light needful to influence corruption and illuminate the darkness are comparatively small. I have a, a, a habit uh, that my wife always reproves me of. Before I, I eat my meal, I always sprinkle salt on, whether I've tasted it or not. It's a habit. But I notice food that is unsalted. It becomes bland and not 
pleasant for me to eat. But the, the tiny amount of salt added makes all the difference to the meal. The Lord Jesus Christ only had 12 disciples. One of them a betrayer. The, the Christian church began with relatively a very few adherents and yet by God's spirit and by God's enabling turned the then world upside down. And Noah was the only one with an effective ministry to seven souls. And preachers need to reflect on this and to be encouraged by God's word without being complacent and neglectful of the challenge of the world that it presents to us. So that's our third point we're thinking of then. Noah's ministry opportunities, whilst unique to him, bear similarities to our own. And the fourth, I would like to add, would be this. Noah's ministry was characterised by relevance to his world and faithfulness to God. Noah's ministry was characterised by relevance to his world and faithfulness to God. And it's here where I must acknowledge some frustrations we're just going to have to live with. How long did he preach exactly? Was this all the time that the ark was being built? How long was it in construction? Who were the builders, just he and his family? What was the content of his preaching? To whom did he preach? Well, the biblical text gives us some clues and we can deduce some inferences. In being a herald of righteousness, he must have declared the nature of God in a godless world. And no greater honour than to be called to be that. So, under this heading, this sub, he was relevant. He was relevant. He was relevant in that, by the very nature of the call of God upon him, he resisted a privatised religion. And what do I mean by that? Well, work this through with me. The building of an ark cannot but be public. You cannot hide it away. We read of the enormous dimensions in that reading we had. How could the building of this ark be private? Well, the answer is, it can't. It is public. And so, for Noah, there was no disjunction between public and private expressions of faith. Alas, many pastors and preachers seem to be content with a mere privatised religion. That is, keep it within four walls and four walls alone of your chapel building between 11 and 12.15 and 6.30 and 7.45 every Sunday. No. Again, going back to Nancy Pierce's book, which I highly recommend, Total Truth, she quotes from 
Martin Marty, the author of that, the modern schism, concerning the private and public expressions of faith. And he writes this, and she's quoting him, we are living for the first time in history where Christianity has been boxed into the private sphere and has largely stopped speaking to the public sphere. The historian Sidney Mead said, this internalisation or privatisation of religion is one of the most momentous changes that has ever taken place in Christendom. And these are very, very important issues for the preacher today to consider and reflect upon. And Piercy goes on to say this, As a result of our lives are often fractured and fragmented with our faith firmly locked into the private realm of church and family where it rarely has a chance to inform our life and work in the public realm. The aura of worship dissipates after Sunday and we unconsciously absorb secular attitudes the rest of the week. We inhabit two separate worlds, navigating a sharp divide between our religious life and our ordinary life. Shame on us. How do we respond to that? We say Jesus is Lord in the totality of life. Now one con contemporary illustration of this took place in the summer. It was in the midst of my preparation and it came at the time when I thought, that is amazing. Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, made strictures against the loan shark lender Wonga, and rightly so. This company uh, issues iniquitous rates of interest and has snared many into, into debt, which is uh, scandalous in this country. And he decided to take them on. As a result, the independent newspaper wrote a leader condemning him for this. And the editorial on the 26th of July this year said, payday lenders, question mark, the church should keep to matters spiritual. And we say no. We say no. He's at every right to take to task the iniquity of payday lenders such as Wonga. I'll never forget when I first read the devastating comment by Theodore Rosak about the Christian faith in America. And he said this, socially irrelevant, even if privately engaging. This is, of course, quoted by Os Guinness in the, the book The Last Christian on Earth. It's a kind of modern version of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, earlier published under the title of The Gravedigger's File. It's a 
a very helpful book to read and challenging. Now the point must be made that Noah knew no such division between private and public expressions of faith. Nor must a pastor preacher. He is a minister not only to his congregation but also to the whole community. Whether that community recognises it or not, that's up to them. But as far as the minister is concerned, the pastor preacher, he is minister to his congregation and to the community. Well, what was, entire, what was then the... Uh, the content of Noah's preaching. I wish I knew, but we, we have to infer. Preacher of righteousness, he must have declared, must he not, the, the doctrine of God. He was divinely warned of things not yet seen. Judgment, therefore, must have figured in his ministry, reminding of the people of their lack of righteousness and the coming judgment of the Lord in the flood. And the ark also must have been presented as the only way of salvation. Now the preacher today is obliged to balance his ministry, that double-edged aspect of the gospel of which we heard about earlier. The positive and the negative. The doctrine of grace yet also to the coming judgment. We bring those glorious promises Yet those negative warnings as well. The challenge is to present this relevantly and boldly remains a high priority as it ever has been. So I would, add, I would say this, friends. I believe that Noah was relevant in his ministry. And I also believe that he was faithful. Faithful in his ministry. He never gave in and he never gave up. He kept on. And continuance in ministry, despite the odds, is a major issue today for pastors and preachers. And those who hear me in ministry today, this is an issue for you. I've known too many pastors who in the early years of their ministry have precipitously resigned and damaged their churches and disabled themselves. It's a major tragedy. And here is a, a great encouragement to us that Noah kept on. He kept on because of his living faith in the Lord and God gave him this tenacity, this refusal to quit. That's one of the biggest temptations in the ministry today, my friends, to quit. For decades, he would not give in. He would not give up. How could he have done this? Well, I believe for this reason. He was only concerned for the audience of one. The living God. And his honour and glory. It was his faith in the living God. And this resolution is the pressing need for us today, surely. It's always too soon to quit. Raymond Edmund was a past Chancellor of Wheaton College. 
He wrote a book which has been a great blessing to me called The Dis- Disciplines of Life. And in the chapter, The Discipline of Determination, he wrote these words which are stirring. Determination to finish what we have begun is a discipline we need. We trifle with one task and when it becomes trite, we want a change of scenery. Every semester, several come to me to bid farewell with work unfinished. Were they led of God to Wheaton? Has some other place or person or project become more pleasing than the routine of studies? They think that just over the horizon there are greater advantages and opportunities. Some glowing vision dazzles them and they cannot stick to their appointed duty. Preeminently, this is this discipline exemplified in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. At an early age, he was about his father's business. In the strength of manhood, he declared, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. When earthly service was complete, he could pray, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And from Calvary's cross rang out in triumph, it is finished. Can we not follow in his footsteps? Filled with his spirit to finish the task appointed with heart aglow and hurrying feet, with strong hands and steady mind, with shield of faith and sword of spirit, with patience to run the race that is set before us. Can we not trust him for grace that is sufficient for strength that is perfected in weakness, for help that is sure and for faithfulness that will not fail in order that we may know the discipline of doing our duty, then it is always too soon to quit. I was a young pastor at Surrey Gardens Mission, Woolworth, the London Borough of Southwark, and by God's providence, there was an article published in a Banner of Truth magazine in June 1972. I read it every month with great blessing. It was penned by C.H. Spurgeon called Against Hastening to Remove from Our Post of Duty. It's still available. You can get it on the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, website. And... uh, It it was a blessing to me and it was helpful for me to be reminded that it was always too soon to quit. Well, the last thing I want to say fifthly and lastly is this. Noah's ministry calls for a reassessment of success and failure in our service for God today. This must follow from all I've said regarding Noah's faithfulness. If we can extrapolate from 2 Peter 3 verse 3 following that there will be scoffers and mockers in the last day, so we can infer surely that prior to the deluge that destroyed the then world in Noah's day, there were scoffers and mockers then. Here is then one of the most trying issues in ministry. How do I judge success? 
Now, every preacher I've met and heard wanted to be successful for the Lord, myself included. And it's painfully true, is it not, that we have pressures within us that issue in mixed motives. Egotistical inner drives are known by us, fueled by pride. That was no doubt true of Noah as well. He did have a people to preach to other than his family, but there was a stubborn unresponsiveness. And as we've seen from the comments of uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones in his sermons on 2 Peter, a small number to preach to can be a real trial. But I'm encouraged in this reality, brothers. Noah did not serve conditionally with the proviso he would only serve if success was guaranteed. Nor, in a right sense, has any preacher called of God who has responded to his call should make such demands. I'll only serve you, Lord, unless you can guarantee me success. No. We serve unconditionally at God's good pleasure. Noah did no blessing. His family was saved. He knew also the great blessing of finishing the work God gave him to do. Was he vindicated? Well, indeed he was. The flood came. His very faithfulness was indeed success. Herein is his great usefulness for us today. Was it not Dr. Lloyd-Jones who said, one of the worst things that can happen to a young minister is for him to be too successful too soon. Wise words come to us from Phillips Brooks on preaching, where he says, failure and success to really working ministers are only relative. Remember that no true man wholly succeeds or wholly fails. But the main difference in effect between what we call success and what we call failure in the ministry is this. Success makes a man dwell upon and be thankful for how much a preacher can do. Failure makes a man think how much there is which no preacher can do. And this can weigh him into depression. There's no help except in a profound retreat, therefore, of the whole nature upon God. Such a perception of him and his dearness shall take off our heavy responsibilities and make us ready to fail for him with joy as well as to succeed for him, if such be his choice, and ready to work as hard for him in failure as well as success. And this is the main point he makes, because we work not for such success, but for him. And so, my friends, 
we're working not to gain the approval of a sceptical eldership. Nor are we wanting the approval of doubtful parents or a denomination or indeed, in one sense, are we working for the church? No. We're working for him. We're serving for him. And we want to glorify him. It is as I make the Lord Jesus Christ my constant view and make the gospel my heart's daily joy and delight and privilege that I can serve so great a God and Saviour in these apostate days. And may that be true of us all. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word and bless it to our hearts, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.